Heavenly Father, we ask that you would indeed strengthen us by your word this morning. Lord, we recognize that we are sorrowful and weak and feeble without your voice. Oh, Lord, we would collapse completely if we weren't strengthened by your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would invigorate us as we look at your son, Jesus Christ, and the account that is given to us this morning of his actions and his speech. Lord, we pray that we would be quickened in our souls and that we would delight ourselves in Jesus Christ as a result of examining him this morning together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we return to our series in John's Gospel. We've been away for some time and we've come back to where we left off previously, which is chapter 7. Last time we were together, we looked at the end of chapter 6. And so this morning we pick up in chapter 7 where we see Christ's brothers seeking to tell Jesus what he should do. We saw that uh, they say in verse 3 to him that he ought to leave here and go to Judea so that Christ's disciples may see the miracles that he does and they encourage him to go up to the feast. And who are these brothers of Jesus? Well, the best understanding is that they are his biological brothers through Mary, not uh, that they are through uh, their biological brothers through Joseph, because of course Jesus is not biologically connected to Joseph. But we believe that these are Joseph's children with Mary, and they are mentioned in other parts of the Gospels, and particularly Matthew chapter 13. We even get some of the names of Joseph's brothers. It says in Matthew's Gospel 13 verse 55, uh, "Isn't this the carpenter's son speaking about Jesus? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James?" Joseph, Simon and Judas aren't all his sisters with us. So we see there in the Gospels that Mary did have other children. She had some daughters, but she particularly had James, Joseph, Simon and Judas. And two of those are very familiar to us if we are students of the Bible, because two of them actually wrote epistles in the Bible. We know that James and Jude were Jesus' brothers and they indeed wrote the books James and Jude. But here we see that they are concerned about Jesus and start to tell him what to do. Why are they concerned about him? Well, there's a number of reasons that we could gather from the text. Uh, Firstly, if we think back to John chapter 6, we see that Jesus' ministry is not going very well in terms of worldly success. Jesus, in chapter 6, when we studied it, you have to think back uh, quite some time ago, we, we studied how he had fed the 5,000, plus women and kids, so we're probably talking about 20,000 people, had been following him around, and as Jesus spoke to them about being the bread of life, not just giving physical bread, but that he, they should feed on him, the number of people shrank more and more. And so in chapter 6, verse 66, if you look with me there now, we read, From this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. To the point that he even says to the twelve, Are you going to leave me as well? So many people have left him. That he says to the twelve in verse 67, You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. The twelve are willing to stick with Jesus. Pretty much everybody else is gone. And even then, when we looked at it last time, we saw that the twelve were not as faithful as they first appear. What does Jesus say in the last verses of John chapter 6? Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas 
the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. So Jesus really only has 11 people sticking with him. And then we see that a period of six months has passed while Jesus has stuck around in the backwater of Israel, of Galilee. We open chapter 7 with verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. Galilee is not the uh, the upper-class section of Israel. It's the country hick area, whereas Judea with Jerusalem is where the capital is, Jerusalem, and that is seen to be where it's at, as lots of people find in even Australia, that you've got to be in the big cities if you want to be well-known. If you want to be prosperous, you've got to be in the cities. You don't go out and live in the country area. And so Jesus' brothers recognise this. They come from Nazareth, the country area as well, and they are seeing that he's lost a lot of his followers and that he stayed in this country area, travelling around there, rather than going to Judea. And he's done this for basically a period of six months. Uh, We know how long it's been because at the beginning of chapter 6, we see that the Passover feast was near in verse 4. If you turn back just a page in your Black Church Bibles, chapter 6, verse 4, it says the Jewish Passover feast was near. And then, of course, Jesus does the miracle of feeding of the 5,000. And then in chapter 7... Verse 2, it says, but when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near. So we go from the Passover to the Feast of Tabernacles. It's about a six-month period. And during this period, what has Jesus done? He stayed in the country where there's not many people. And so Jesus' brothers recognize this and they think, what are you doing? You shouldn't be here. You should instead be going up to Judea. You should be going to the tabernacle. And that's what they tell Jesus to do. In verse 3, we see, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. Go up to Judea and do some miracles. That always wins respect from a crowd. They command him that you should leave here and go and do miracles. If you want to be a public figure, you don't hide out in Galilee. That's what they say in verse 4. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, since you are doing miracles... Show yourself to the world. They're telling Jesus what to do because they think that they know better than Jesus. They know what should be happening for Christ. Now, why doesn't Jesus do what his brothers say? Why doesn't he say, oh, I've been trying to work out how I can be a more public figure and you guys are on the right track and thank you so much for telling me what to do. No, Jesus says he is not going to do what they suggest. Why is that? Well, one reason is that if he goes up to Judea, it's likely that he will lose his life. Uh, Verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. People were ready to kill him in Judea. And so it would be a pretty short ministry if he followed their advice and went up publicly as they suggest. And Jesus knows that he won't be popular in Judea anyway. Why is that? Well, verse 7 tells us, The world cannot hate you, he says to his brothers, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. Jesus knows that the world hates him. If he goes up there and publicly says that they're evil people, it won't necessarily win him credit in worldly terms. But we know it's not Jesus' fear that he will be killed, that keeps him away from Jerusalem. Because we see that he does go up, but not in the way that his brothers suggest. 
And we know that he is willing to die, but on his timing, when it's right for him. And that's what he says in verse 8. He says, you go to the feast, I'm not yet going up to this feast, because for me the right time has not yet come. Christ is all about his timing. He knows what's best for him. His brothers think any time that they have a good idea, that's the right time to implement it. But Jesus knows better. So what is ultimately the problem with Jesus' brothers when they tell Jesus what to do? Well, verse 5 tells us what the problem with Jesus' brothers is. What is it? Verse 5, it says, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Jesus' own biological brothers did not believe in him. They did not trust in him. They know he's doing miracles. They recognize he is able to do some miracles. But they don't trust in Jesus as they should. They want Jesus to act according to their will, not according to Jesus' own will. They're really strong in their language. They have three imperatives, three commands in this text that they say, leave, go, show yourself. They're really barking orders at Jesus Christ. They are not trusting that he knows best, that his will, his timing is right. They clearly don't understand that Jesus' mission in this world, when he came, was to suffer a shameful, horrible death, that he was to be a suffering servant in this world. And Jesus' brothers reflect an attitude that is shown amongst many people. Even if we just look back at chapter 6, the attitude there of telling Jesus what to do is there as well. When Jesus fed the 5,000, we saw that people kept on asking him basically a series of questions to try and get him to do another miracle of feeding them. They thought they were onto a good thing. Let's get some free food from this guy on a regular basis. And so in verse 30 of John chapter 6, we see that the crowd says to him, what miraculous sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? They're interested in telling Jesus what to do. They're a little bit nicer than Jesus' brothers are in the way that they phrase the question, but they're really interested in getting Jesus to do what they want. And they go through a series of questions when we studied John 6 together. We saw the way that they speak to Jesus. It's all about manipulating him to get what they want. And this is an attitude that is not just in the Gospels. It's not just in the Scriptures. It is throughout the world, of those who know Jesus, an unbelief is often shown by the way that they speak to him. People will say, yes, they trust in Jesus Christ. They will take the name Christian upon them. But when you see the way that they actually speak to Jesus, it shows that they do not really believe in him for who he is. How is this shown? Well, it's by the way that we often demand Jesus do what we want without consideration of his will. We're concerned about our own will and what we would like to have happen and we want him to act according to our terms. Now, I've got to be very careful here. This is not saying that you can't speak to Jesus and ask him to help you with things. Yes, he delights in us coming to him in prayer with the requests that we have. But sometimes we can reflect upon our prayers and see that we're not so much asking him in accordance with his will, but we're asking in accordance with our will that he would act. I mean, the exaggerated example is where people ask for a miracle of some sort that is clearly not something that Jesus would want to do. So many people I've heard who've prayed to Jesus that he would give them a Ferrari. And Jesus hasn't. 
And so then it shows what they actually believe about Jesus Christ, that he will give them all the good things that they would like rather than being interested in what he would like them to have and then ask accordingly. And sometimes it's the way that people want things to happen instantly. They ask Jesus for help, they pray, and then they expect as soon as they open their eyes that the answer will be given. They don't respect his timing, which is what Jesus rebukes his brothers for. But they say, he says, any time is right for you. But for me, I operate on my time, not your time. And so you see some people in their prayer requests to God, they're like children that are wanting ice cream and they want it now. Regardless of the time of day, whether it be breakfast or just before dinner, it's still a good time for ice cream. Whether it's in the middle of winter, you're out and the harbour, and it's freezing cold, and there's an ice cream shop there, and the kids think, it's a really good time for ice cream. I didn't bring a jacket, Dad, I'm freezing, but it's still a good time for ice cream. That's the attitude some people have towards Jesus. They know what they want, and they want it now. They don't ask in accordance with Jesus' will, and they don't ask in accordance with Christ's timing. Now, you may be shocked to think that people actually speak that way to God, but I've seen it. I've heard it. Remember a phone call from someone who hadn't been from church for some time and I was following up and they rang me back and they said, look, Joel, I've got a number of problems and I've prayed about them. I've got problems with health. I've got problems with employment. I've got problems with family. I've got problems with the government. I prayed about them all and nothing's happened. Not one of them has been solved. And so to be honest with you, Joel, my faith is non-existent. My faith is non-existent because I've prayed and nothing has happened. I was ready to give some pastoral counsel in return, but then a mobile phone, I was ringing, it was on a landline, and the mobile phone rang and he said, I've got to go, got to go. I've never heard from the person since. And what does that show? It shows a lack of faith, just like Jesus' brothers here. The way they spoke to Jesus shows that they really didn't believe in him for who he is. They believed in an imaginative Jesus of their own minds. And people do that. They think that Jesus is who they want him to be, not who the scriptures actually proclaim him to be. And so then their faith is shown by the way that they turn away, even from that imaginative Jesus of their minds. Whereas if we truly believe that Jesus is who he is, we won't speak the way Jesus' brothers did so many years ago and so many people do today. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. He's God himself. He's the second member of the Trinity. What do the scriptures tell us about Jesus Christ? Many things. But I'll give you one example that should remind us of who Jesus is and how we should speak to him. Revelation chapter 19. Turn with me there now. Revelation chapter 19, page 1,229. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, page 1,229. Revelation chapter 19, and I'll read from verse 11. So the Apostle John is speaking of what he sees here and what he sees of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 19, reading from verse 11 
page 1229. Revelation 19, verse 11, the Apostle John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the one, this is the Jesus who those brothers many years ago were trying to boss around and who many people today seek to boss around. When we boss Jesus Christ around in our prayers, we show unbelief that he really is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is God himself. Just imagine that you're back in kindergarten at school. I don't think there are any kindergartners amongst us this morning. But imagine you're back in kindergarten and you march into the principal's office and you say to the principal that we need some changes around here. I know what this school needs. It needs a pool. Apparently, my father's a school teacher, and he said, yes, the SRC representative, the school representative council, every year they pretty much, whatever school you're at, they ask the principal for a pool. It may not happen in private schools where they actually do have pools, but uh, public schools don't generally have pools, but public school children generally want a pool. Imagine marching in as a kindergartner, all of five years of knowledge under your belt and saying to the principal, we want a pool. And when do we want it? Now. Doesn't matter that's the middle of winter. We want a pool now. Now times that scenario by a billion and you're not even close to what you're doing with Jesus Christ. If you march up to him and start barking orders at him as to what he should or shouldn't do because you know best that your will is more important than his will and your timing is more important than his timing. It's audacious. It's terrible. You are not comprehending who Jesus Christ actually is. If Jesus wants to do a miracle... He can do a miracle. If he doesn't want to do a miracle, he doesn't have to do a miracle. If he wants to spend a lot of time in one particular part of the world, Galilee, for instance, or let's say China or Africa, he's able to spend that time there. He's allowed. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. If he doesn't want to spend a lot of time in a particular country, if he doesn't want to send revival by his spirit throughout a nation, he's allowed we can't even make demands like that. And if he wants to delay things, delay the answers to your prayer, if he wants to use his own timing, he's allowed. And if he wants to tell us we're evil, particularly when we are, he's allowed, as he did in the Gospels there. He says the world hates him because he says they are evil. 
People don't like Jesus saying that. But if he is the King of Kings, if he is the Son of God, if he is God himself, he is allowed. We heard from Isaiah 40 before. It was read aloud. And in verse 13 and 14, Isaiah says, Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? The answer is no one. Amen to that. No one is the counsellor of Jesus Christ. Not even his own biological brothers who knew him very well. And not us here today with all the wisdom of our years that we think we have. So what should we do? We should examine our prayers to see if there is a hint of unbelief there. Think of your prayers to the Lord. Are they only prayers of what you want? Do they sound like the orders that you would give to a waiter? Or is there praise of Jesus in your prayers? Is there confession in your prayers? Is there thanksgiving to Jesus for what he has done in your life? Or is it more that he is your waiter taking your orders when you pray to him? If you pray for a miracle, is it in accordance with Christ's will? Not your will for a Ferrari. Is it in accordance with Christ's will? Do you respect Christ's timing when it comes to answering your prayers? Or do you expect them to be answered immediately? And if Jesus hasn't given you what you want and hasn't given it to you quickly enough, then your faith in him is weakened and you feel justified in not trusting in him because he doesn't do as you say and as quickly as you would like. For some people, it's not like they're giving orders to Jesus as a waiter in a very fine restaurant. It's like they're giving orders to a McDonald's staff member and expecting them to be answered immediately. Why is my cheeseburger taking so long It's meant to be here within two minutes, isn't it? It's the same with my prayers to Jesus. They should be answered within a few minutes. I'm interested in fast prayers that are quickly answered. What about the tone of your prayers? Are they bossy? Are they like Jesus' brothers so many years ago? Would you speak to the Queen of England with the tone that you speak to Jesus Christ in your prayers? Do your prayers show reverence and humility as they should? Now remember, I'm not saying we can't ask Jesus for help. That we can't go to him in prayer and ask for his help. Even a school principal does let kindergarten children tell them, tell him their concerns and make requests. And just because the school principal listens, though, doesn't mean he's going to give the kids a pool. And the principal expects that when he's asked for a pool, he's asked nicely and with respect. And sometimes he expects the children to understand that a pool isn't a very good use of educational resources and to ask more in line with his will rather than their own wills. We can go to Jesus for help with our concerns, but we've got to be very careful about the way that we speak to him. Because... Examining our faith then can, examining our prayers can reveal our faith. It tells us a lot about our faith in Jesus. Our prayers can tell us whether we really do believe that Jesus is the King 
or whether we actually believe that Jesus is our servant and we are his king. You may be saying, why is it important to discover whether you really do believe in Jesus? See, this is the thing. The prayers that we pray are really good ways for us to discover where our faith is at, just as we can discover where Jesus' biological brother's faith was at, that they didn't believe in him by the way that they spoke to him. We can discover whether we really have faith in Jesus. Now, why is that important to do? Well, it's so that we will believe and have life in his name. If we do not believe in Jesus for who he is, we only believe in him for who we think he should be, God's wrath actually remains on us. Psalm 2, verse 12 says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Kiss the Son, S-O-N, not S-U-N. Kiss the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why? Lest he be angry. And you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. If you speak to him in a way that is ungodly and disrespectful, his wrath can flare up in a moment. And so it's important that you believe in him for who he really is. But if you do kiss the son by faith, he will protect us as a loving husband for all of eternity. That's the next part of that verse. Verse 12 of Psalm 2 says... Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He is a son who gets very angry. His wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. We have to remember what John's gospel was written for. Why was John's gospel written? Well, he tells us in John chapter 20, he tells us that these things were written so that we may believe and have life in his name. The whole of John's gospel is about you understanding that you need to believe in Jesus Christ. And he gives us lots of examples of people who didn't believe so that we can see ourselves there maybe and then recognize that we need to believe in him. Right prayer is a fruit of right faith. And a careful examination of your prayers today may actually save your life. Because as you look at your prayers and see they're all requests and I always want him to answer as quickly as possible... Maybe you are not saved at all. Maybe your Jesus that you pray to isn't the Jesus of the Scriptures. You're praying to a false Jesus, to a false God. And the real Christ's wrath remains on you. There's an important instruction for us today as we look at Christ's biological brothers and we see there a warning for us that the way they spoke to him revealed a lack of faith on their part. And you have an opportunity today to look at your prayers. Hopefully you pray. When you pray, how do you speak to Jesus? With reverence and respect, according to his will, according to his timing? Or do you bark orders to him like he's a McDonald's employee? You barely even get off the phone while you make your requests across the counter. If you find that your prayers, if you look at them now and you find that they're very much like the way Jesus' brothers spoke to him so many years ago, confess to him now. Say sorry for your sins. Turn from them. Confess your unbelief in him for who he is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
and start trusting him today as the Jesus of the scriptures, not the Jesus of your imagination and what you think he should be, not what he actually, who he actually is. And if you start to trust him for who he really is, your prayers will naturally be according to his will, according to his timing. And he will delight in answering those prayers because they're prayers uttered in true and lively and saving faith. Let's come to God in prayer now. Let's speak to him. Lord Jesus, we do praise you this morning as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for our unbelief. Lord, we do believe, but Lord, help us overcome our unbelief. Lord, we pray that we would heed the warning of John chapter 7 and the way that even your own brothers spoke to you so many years ago. Lord, we pray that we'd watch our prayers for hints of unbelief and confess it accordingly. Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith, that you are the Jesus of the scriptures, that we would love to learn more about you so that we trust in you rightly. And so, Lord, we pray that our prayers may begin to be right prayers that are according to your will, according to your timing, and according to the reverence and respect that they should have. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.